Please turn with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 28, going on to verse 33. Matthew chapter 10, verses 28 through 33. Hear the word of the Lord. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. If you have the Trinity hymnal, please turn with me to the back of the Trinity hymnal to page 941. Question number 19, the Westminster Larger Catechism. Question number, I said 19, I think I meant 18. Question 18. What are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are as most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. When I was in high school, one of the people that I read was John Piper, pastor, longtime pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church. He would often say that he wanted to write a book on God's providence called The Sightings of the Sovereignty of God. He said that for about 20 years. Then when he finally wrote the book about, I think a few years ago, he titled it Providence. The reason he titled it Providence instead of Sightings of the Sovereignty of God is because sovereignty, well, it's a glorious truth in Scripture. God is sovereign over everything. Providence really shows that God is purposing everything that happens for his own glory. So he chose the word, the word providence. Providence is the topic of tonight's sermon I love, I'll just say, I love this doctrine of providence. I, no matter how, you know, poorly or greatly I preach this sermon, please uh, study the providence of God. It is food for the soul. Uh, I, I, I dare say I will certainly not do it justice. My recent daughter, it, we, named her, I, we named her Providence. Her middle name is Providence, partly because... Not only do I like the name, but I love the doctrine of providence. It's fantastic. So what is it? How does it work? And why should you care? God's providence. What is it? How does it work? 
And why should you care? First, what is God's providence? Well, God's providence is that God controls all things. All things are under his command, and he is purposing all things for his own glory and for the good of those who love him. That's what God's providence is. We don't believe in chance or things just happening. We don't believe in random accidents happening. We don't believe the Bible doesn't teach in anything that would be beyond God's control from the smallest thing, from the dust of my jacket falling to the ground to some of the greatest things, what kings and rulers are doing and the alignment of the stars in the galaxies. From the very small things in life to the very great things in life, they are all controlled by God. That means that you, what happens in your life, from your birth, your conception, until the day you die, everything God knows already, is controlling it, has willed it to happen, and it is purposed for his glory and for your good. The goal of it is God's glory. We don't believe, and the Bible doesn't teach, that God set the world in motion, deism, he created the world, he set it in motion according to certain laws, and then he sits back and watches it all happen. No, there is no such thing as an impersonal law. Yes, we, we talk about laws of gravity and laws of physics and all of these, wonder, these things, but just know that the Bible's teaching is that God is actively upholding the world. He is actively involved in all of the details of the world. If he wants to part the Red Sea, he can part the Red Sea. If he wants the sun to stand still, the sun can stand still. If he wants to raise someone from the dead, he can raise someone from the dead because he is sovereign over all and he has purposed all things for his own glory. We also don't believe in fate, that things are fixed, but there's a purposeless, meaningless sort of fixed plan. No, we believe that God is a benevolent God that has predestined all things for your good and for his glory. That's what it is. I prefer not the Westminster Larger Catechism's definition, although it is perfectly adequate. I prefer the Heidelberg Catechism question and answer. The Heidelberg puts it this way. What do you understand by the providence of God? God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand." I think that is a wonderful description of God's providence. Perhaps the reason I like it is because it sets the definition of God's providence in the experience that you and I have. If you are to go through sickness, if you're to go through poverty, if you were to go without food and drink, or to go with, through barren years, this is all not a part of some meaningless, purposeless chance, but rather This is all according to God's fatherly plan and care. It's given to you by a personal God for you. It reminds me of the first 
answer to the Heidelberg Catechism that I am not my own, but belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins and with his precious blood has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. The Bible has many different places where the providence of God is taught. Let me give you a few different examples in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says that Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. Romans 11, verse 36 says that from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Perhaps the most well-known verse about God's providence, and the one which I think partly the very first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism is based, is Romans 8, verses 28 and 29. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. It's a beautiful verse, one of the favorites of many, many, many people. Tonight, in our passage, I chose a text that really teaches us three things. I'm going to say them very briefly. I could spend the entire time just exegeting the passage. But first, the first thing that this text tells us is that God controls all things. It says that there are not two sparrows sold for a penny. Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. God controls all things. He knows all things, even the hairs of your head. God knows, reminds me again of the Heidelberg Catechism, not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my father in heaven. Not a hair can fall from your head without God's will. That's the first thing it teaches us, that God controls all. But secondly, you are of great value. That's the second thing that it teaches us. You are of more value, it says in verse 31, than many sparrows. This is from the very beginning of the creation account that God makes man in his own image. Male and female in his own image, he crowns them with glory and honor. It's the only creature that God made to bear his own image. And you bear the image of God. You are of great value and significance to God. But the third thing that it teaches, it's almost an argument. If God controls everything and you are of great value, much greater value than sparrows or other creatures in creation, Then what follows comes out in verse 31, fear not. Fear not, therefore. Verse 32, everyone acknowledges me before men. I will acknowledge my Father who is in heaven. The conclusion of this is that you are not to fear because you know your destiny. Your destiny is that Christ, if you have put your faith in Christ, if you have professed your faith in Christ... Christ will confess your name before the heavenly Father, his heavenly Father. 
Therefore, you know what your future holds. You don't have to worry about some random accident, some chance happening into your life, but rather God will put you on this earth for as many days and as many hours and as many minutes as he wants you to be here. And after that time, you will go before Christ and before your heavenly Father who knows you by name. What a great comfort that is. It's a great comfort. It teaches us to trust in Christ, to profess faith in Christ, to cling to Christ. That's what God's providence is teaching us. So what is it? It is God's preserving, governing, controlling all things for his own glory and for your good. But how does that work? I will be the first to say that it's, it's a little bit, I think the best word is mysterious. It's mysterious. When I was in first grade, I fell off a tree. I was climbing a very large tree in our backyard, and I fell off of it and landed on a picket fence and ruptured my spleen. When I was, I, I still remember, and when I was in the hospital, my classmates would, drew me pictures and letters, get well soon, and uh, my friend Chad Brookshire drew a very graphic image of me on the fence with blood coming down, and, and I, I remember, why, how was that comforting? I was terrified when I read that in, when I was in first grade. But I look back and I think, why, why did God put me through that? Or when I was in junior high, or yeah, junior high in eighth grade, I remember I was playing basketball and someone kneed me in my side and I ruptured my spleen the second time. I still have it, but I ruptured my spleen again. And to this day, I don't really know why. <laughs> I don't know why. I think that I remember praying, particularly when I was in junior high. I remember asking God what the purpose of this was for. But I didn't, I'll be the first to say, I didn't receive any, any clear answers. Why? <laughs> it reminds me of the hymn that William Cooper wrote. God moves in a mysterious way. It's a, it's a great classic hymn. And it says this, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense and trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. It's a glorious truth that behind the providence that looks so dark and grim and frowning, God is up to something good. But my, my favorite line in this hymn really isn't any of those verses. It's this, before I say it, it makes me remember my time in the hospital because to this day, I still don't understand all the reasons why. And this is what it says. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. God's providence teaches us not that we will have all of the answers that we would like to have. It doesn't tell us exactly why we are going through the, the microscopic details. It gives us a macro picture that everything that we experience is for God's glory in some mysterious way for our good. But, 
But all the answers to our questions aren't quite clear. But one day, we, we will stand before the Lord, and either we won't care anymore about the, those two times I ruptured my spleen, or, or God will make it plain. And it doesn't mean that you're going to know the answers to what you're going through today, tomorrow, or even 10 years from now. But it does give us great comfort that everything we go through does have a purpose and reason. One of the best case studies in the Bible of this is the life of Joseph. Now, I'm taking some of this from what I learned from Sinclair Ferguson has a podcast called Things Unseen. It's a great podcast. I would encourage anybody to listen to it. It's a fantastic podcast. He has a whole week on God's providence. But the best case study we have is Joseph. I think it's one of the best, if not the best. If you remember Joseph, the second part of the book of Genesis, Joseph was sold into slavery. He was thrown, he was accused of of rape. He was thrown into prison. He was forgotten when he was in prison. He then was released and rose to be Pharaoh's right-hand man, a very prominent, powerful prime minister. Everybody remembers those things. If they know Joseph, they remember those things. But what they don't often remember is what God was up to in the life of his brothers. God was up to a lot in the life of his brothers. It's one of the things that gets overlooked. If you remember, it was Judah who who instigated the plot to sell Joseph into slavery. It was uh, at Judah's Judah's instigation. And at the very beginning of the story, Joseph's family is really a mess. Jacob has favoritism because of his marriage to Rachel, and Benjamin and Joseph were the sons given to him through Rachel. He makes this glorious coat, robe that he gives to Joseph, and his brothers are filled with hatred and envy. Later on, in Genesis 42, when Jacob sends his sons, he doesn't send Benjamin, but he sends his sons to go get grain in Egypt because there's a famine, the sons go before Joseph, who they don't know is his brother, and Joseph recognizes them. But there's a good few chapters, maybe three or four chapters in there, where Joseph is doing some very odd things with his brothers. He First, he tells them to go and get Benjamin. Bring Benjamin. He doesn't say Benjamin. He says, go and get your, young, your youngest brother. Of course, he knows it's Benjamin, but he says, go and get your youngest brother. So why does he do that? Why does he send them back to go get Benjamin? Then he when they bring Benjamin back, they, his court or his, his entourage seats everyone at a table in the order of their birth. They bring a meal out, and they, he puts five times as much food before Benjamin, the youngest one. Why does he do that? Why does he do that? Then when the meal is over... He has his own silver cup placed in Benjamin's sack, and he he dismisses them. Why does he do that? Well, could it be, I think it is, that Joseph is wanting to test his brothers, 
to see if they are still filled with the kind of hatred and envy of their youngest brother that was responsible for him being sold into slavery. Couldn't it be that he's testing his brothers to see if God had done a work in their heart? And in Genesis 42, it's a beautiful moment. In Genesis 42, verse 21, the brothers are speaking, and it says this. They said to one another, in truth, they're speaking about Joseph. This was many years later, by the way. They said to one another, in truth, we're guilty concerning our brother. In that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. One of the purposes of God's providence in your life is that you would be convicted of sin. One of God's purposes of providence is that you would be brought to the foot of the Lord Jesus Christ, the feet of Christ, and crying out for mercy. That's what happened in the lives of Joseph's brothers. When Benjamin is brought... When they're brought back and Benjamin's, Joseph's silver cup is found in Benjamin's sack, it's Judah, Judah, the one who is responsible for selling Joseph into slavery. It's Judah that is intervening on behalf of Benjamin. What do you see? I think that you see God's providence, that what happened to Joseph was not just for his benefit, but it was to bring about the reconciliation of his entire family. It was, it was not only about the purification of his character, but also the hatred and the envy that his brothers had. Do you think that Joseph could have understood all of that at the opening of the story when he was, I think he was 17? I don't think he could. John Flavel, one of the Puritans, said that providence is like the, like the Hebrew language. It can only be read backwards. If you've ever read the Hebrew language, you'll know it can't be read from left to right. We read English from left to right, but if you read Hebrew, it's from right to left. In the same way, providence, you can't see it. You can't see everything that God is up to at the time. But looking back... And looking through the lens of God's grace over time and the change of your character, if you've been walking with God through faith and repentance of sin, I think we are to, we're not able to see everything crystal clear. I think we're able to see things a little bit more clear than we were before. That's the way God's providence works. It's mysterious. It is mysterious at the time. Finally, Why is this important for you? Why is this important for you sitting there tonight? One of the questions that continually comes up in your life, if you haven't asked this question yet, you will. Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? That's a question that usually comes up whenever you go through anything, even if it seems small, that rubs you the wrong way, sometimes you can ask, why is this happening to me? And I I would, on the basis of what we have already said from the Word of God and learned from the Scripture references, I think we can say at least three things. First, first, 
you will not be able to see the answer to that question, why is this happening to me? You won't be able to see the answer to that. Now, just because you can't see the answer does not mean there is not an answer. When Joseph was 17 years old, how could he have fathomed and understood all that God would do to bring about the reconciliation of his family? I mean, just because you can't see God working in the day-to-day doesn't mean that he's not there. doesn't mean that he's absent. doesn't mean there's not an answer. It just means that you can't see the answer. Secondly, one of the answers clearly must be that it is about you being made into the image of our crucified Savior. That is part of the that passage, Romans 8, 28 through 29, those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. If you think about Joseph, Joseph was being made more and more like Jesus. Joseph was being made more and more like Jesus. He was humbled, he was humiliated. It it just got worse and worse, and finally he was exalted. And we see that most clearly in the Lord Jesus Christ. When Joseph was 17, he was impatient, he was unwise, he was pretty self-centered, all of those things. I think he had a loud mouth. He probably shouldn't have told his brothers what he had dreamed. That's my opinion. But then, after 14 years, he emerges as a very different person. He emerges as someone who is wise, who is compassionate, who is gracious, who is humble. We see the transformation of his character. Now, that transformation came not because, it didn't come in spite of everything that he went through. It came because he went through those things. In other words, it might be that the things that you are going through would be the very means that God would bring about some kind of redemption in your life. It might be that the very things he's bringing you through might be the things that will most readily bring glory to God and most readily point other people to Jesus. So that's the second thing. You're being conformed. You're being conformed to the crucified Savior. We may want to be conformed to the exalted Savior. We want glory now. But you're being conformed to the crucified Savior. Thirdly, So first, you're not able to see the answer. Second, you're being made into the image of Christ. But thirdly, whatever answer you come up with to the question, why is this happening to me, the answer cannot simply be just about you. We see that very clearly in Joseph's life. Joseph went through what he went through, not because for his own sake, but also for the redemption of other people for the salvation of other people, for the reconciliation of his family, for the benefit of all of those who belong to his family and beyond. So whatever God is up to with you, it's not only that he's doing something in you, you're being conformed to the image of Christ, but he is doing something through you on behalf of other people. That, By the way, you will certainly not be able to see that. It's really hard for you to see anything that God's doing in you. It's certainly even, even much more hard or unfathomable what God is doing in the lives of other people through you. 
But certainly that has to be one of the answers. In the Lord Jesus Christ, this is all pointing us to Christ, in the Lord Jesus Christ you have the God-man who trusted God's providence even to his own death. He trusted in God's providence even to the cross, to the point of death on a cross where he would bear the sins of all of his people, where he would undergo the wrath of God on our behalf. That's was, that was in the plan of God. Acts 2.23 tells us that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. See how mysterious that is? That God, in his providence and in his care, would use that evil act of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ to accomplish the great victory of our sin. It looked like defeat. It looked like failure. Nobody could see what this was all about. His closest companions were at a loss. And yet, this was a part of God's glorious plan to bring about the redemption of his people. If that's the case with the Lord Jesus Christ and how mysterious that was and is, how much more mysterious and beyond us are the details of our daily life. So, In summary, know that there is a plan in your life. It is a plan to bring about your conformity to the image of Christ, to bring about the glory of God. It will be mysterious. You will not be able to know all of the answers. You will not be able to to see all of the answers. And surely one of the answers is that it's for the sake of other people. And finally, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. We often think and measure our suffering in days of our life, and we think death is the end, but Scripture says otherwise. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human heart has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. That includes you and me. You have not been able to conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. May that give you comfort and hope in your day-to-day life as you walk before the Lord in faithfulness, seeking his word, seeking his counsel, his wisdom, and surrendering your heart and your life to the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his perfect life and his substitutionary death. We confess that we are quite self-absorbed in our own problems. We often ask the question, why is this happening to me? And that leads us to self-pity. It leads us to be self-focused. It leads us not to the foot of the cross, but rather to gazing at our own navels. And we pray that you would take us out of ourselves and that you would Fix our gaze to Christ, the Lord Jesus, who suffered unto the point of death, even death on a cross. We pray that you would make our hearts ready and willing to confess sin when it is brought to our attention. We pray that you would make our hearts tender 
so that when we go through pain and suffering and we don't understand the reasons why you're bringing us through different things, we pray that we would rest knowing that we are of great value, greater value than any of your other creatures. We pray that we would be drawn to your fatherly love and care that is upholding and sustaining the universe, that is working all things for the good of those who love you and have been called according to your purpose. We pray that, and know that you will, but we pray that you would conform us to the image of Christ, even if that means suffering. Make our hearts willing and ready to follow after Christ, to take up the cross and follow him. We pray this all to the glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.